Welcome to the Clinical Thinker podcast, and this is hosted by Dr. Jared Hall, Dr. Mark Cardula, and Ben Cormack, who are three clinicians dedicated to improving clinical reasoning, person-centered care, and utilizing evidence and science-based medicine. This is a podcast for those that like to think, and we will endeavor to discuss matters relevant to healthcare professionals across the spectrum of healthcare, from the latest evidence to controversial subjects affecting today's clinician, trying not to be too boring along the way. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Please seek the advice of appropriate professionals. So, welcome to Clinical Thinker episode 10. And we've made episode 10, which is uh yeah, which is pretty cool. Apparently, the average podcast runs for seven episodes, I think. Um, and there may be a bit of a standard deviation in there. So, you know, you know, we may see some that go a little bit less, some go a little bit more, but around seven. So we're actually above average, which you know, it works for me. I've always seen myself as distinctly average, so being above average is pretty cool. So episode 10, we are going to chat about exercise and pain, which is pretty much my wheelhouse, so that's cool. Um, As usual, I'm joined by uh, Mark Cargilla, Cargilla, so I still haven't got it right, 10 episodes in. Uh, How you doing, Mark? Doing well, Ben. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, buddy. Pretty good. And also, Jared. Jared Hall. How are you, Jared? I'm doing phenomenal. Just uh, holding it down in the deep south over here in Texas, you know. I thought Jared had fallen asleep there. I mean, I know I have that effect, but mate, you're just having a little like morning nap or whatever. Jared's no. getting a little bit old now. He needs a he needs a nap. Uh, you just soothe me, Ben. You you, you just <laughs> your, your British accent. It just makes me so calm. I actually think that if I wasn't British, my career would have gone. You know, it wouldn't be. You know what it wherever I am now. Uh, certainly that, uh, that gives me that extra like 85% smarts that drags me up to 90%, which is, uh, which is pretty cool stuff. Um, so gentlemen, what have you been up to? What's been going on in, um, in the worlds of, of Jared and Mark and Mark or Jared or however, however you want to put it. Go ahead, Jared. Oh, okay. I'll go ahead. <clears throat> <laughs> Jared was just gently dozing again, then dribbling maybe. Well, stop sounding so silky smooth. Now, in uh, in my world, you know, uh, Mark and I, of course, have been doing quite a bit of work on the whole uh, modern pain care front. And I just made a I made a big change in in my life, uh, deciding to uh, cut back on clinical hours a little bit a couple of weeks ago to open up my schedule to um, be able to read a little bit more and learn a little bit more and uh, do a little bit of um, contract work for a local school and a ballet company and that sort of thing. So uh, things are, things are in transition for me right now, but it's really good. It's a step that I've been wanting to make for a long time and I finally was able to do so. Are you sure it's not just so you can have more naps? It's mainly naps. (laughs) Just so I'm just going to call you at like every Tuesday at two o'clock and soothe you and you can just nap and you can just put money in my bank account for that. Um, well, that sounds very exciting, Jared. Good to make uh, you know some changes and, uh, and transitions away from just uh, the clinical grind. How about your good self, Mark? What's been going on? 
Well, kind of as Jared alluded to, I've been working really hard on kind of the modern pain care front. We're trying to launch some programs that we feel are going to kind of embody kind of what we're all about at modern pain care. So that stuff's on the hopper and just trying to make sure we show folks that we got, uh, you know, some value to share and that it's, you know, I'm, of course we're confident we have it, but, uh, that folks that don't necessarily know us as well, uh, may not think so. So we're going to really be sharing a lot of kind of what that's all about in the next few weeks. But other than that, just been really hanging out with the family. My two-year-old daughter grows up like a weed and is talking more and more each day. So, and she's got the whole no daddy thing down pat. So, I'm just trying to keep up with her, really, and then her and my wife and uh, myself, just just trying to hang out and have fun on the weekends, make sure putting family is priority. Yeah, that that that's cool stuff. I uh, my son is eight next Tuesday, so the seventeenth. Um, and I remember my friend saying to me many many years ago, he said to me, he said to me, Ben, you can't wait for them to start talking, and then you can't wait for them to shut up. So he had a bit of a value of experience on me. I think my son was probably about two at the time and his son was like 10 or something. Um, but, he, you know, obviously it's a blessing. It's only messing about. My son just ignores me mostly now. He just wants to watch Teen Titans and I don't know. So, yeah. So they kind of go through these stages of, uh, of really, really needing you and then gaining their independence. And then you just, you know, then I'm, I'm tossed away again, Mark, like, like, Parental trash, unfortunately. Um, have you guys been to anywhere teaching? Well, yeah. we, we're heading to Wisconsin next weekend, not this weekend. That'll be the 20th and 24, or 21st, 20th. I don't even know what the heck dates they are anymore. And then uh, we're actually going to be out in Finland teaching in April. We are also, I think, New York City sometime, I think, March of next year. So, um, and talking the, DC, the DC area in January. Yeah, that's right. With with our friends at Recharge, that's right. We'll be hanging out with uh, Ryan and Gene and some others there who are, are some good people. So hopefully, get some crab cakes. Even though it'll be it'll be uh, winter time, but I'm I'm hoping they have some decent stuff left over then. Yeah, I just I just got back from Finland uh, a couple of weeks ago. I've had a heavy. I've been in Morocco, then Finland, then I was in Amsterdam, and this weekend I'm in Madrid. So it's been a real. Uh, a real crazy run of four weeks for me. Um, but yeah, Finland, Finland was awesome. You guys are going to love it over there in Finland. I had a sea castle, so we had to get a boat to an island. So the whole course got on the boat, went over to this island. We did some teaching in this big castle um, and then all got on the boat and then went back to Helsinki and then had some beers and stuff. So, so yeah, you guys are going to really love it over there. Have you been to Finland before? I have not. I'm half finished, so I'm I'm interested to reconnect with my heritage. So I'll, I'll I'll be interested to check it out. So definitely excited. So here's the thing: it, when Mark and I go, if they stick us in the basement, and I know that you got a sea castle, I'm really going to raise some hell. Well, I think it probably just reflects our uh, kind of our stature. To be honest with you, Jared, I just think this is something you've probably just got to accept, buddy. I know, I know. I'm just uh, trying to trying to pep myself up. No, this was actually my second time. So I have a bit of history. So um, I went out with Yussi and those guys, uh, I think last year around the same time. And we just had a bog standard classroom last time. So, so it shows that um, shows I must have done a good job. Not only did they invite me back, they got me a sea castle. That's hard <laughs> to beat. That's pretty awesome. Uh, the, the, pictures, the pictures looked really impressive. 
apparently when I come to the US next, I'm going to get the White House. That's a rumor that's being floated. <laughs> Uh, good luck, man. I, I hope you get it. <laughs> uh, apparently, they're, they're going to serve up like McDonald's for lunch and stuff. I, I, apparently, that's how they roll. Um, I, I stay as far away from politics as possible. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to tread these days. And you know, well, you know what? I was have you know this whole kind of. I don't know how much you guys follow the whole kind of Brexit thing. Have you guys been following that? A, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. It's just a massive clusterfuck, isn't it? If we're being honest. Yeah, I would say that sums it up from what I'm seeing from the uh, the view over here in the US. And I actually had the thought the other day, you know, we've talked about things like the biopsychosocial model before. And I was just wondering if we think about kind of societal stress and, and those kind of factors, I wonder what kind of impact these kind of political climates have on national health, you know, in terms of what does Brexit do for the UK what does kind of the political upheaval that you have going on in the US, what are the kind of, you know, implications for population health? Right? This is something that I really wonder. I, think, I mean, go ahead, Jerry. I was just going to say anecdotally, um, I, obviously I live in the deep south, right? So there is a certain perception of the, the political climate in the deep south. However, where I live, Texas, interestingly, is about a 50-50 split state between, you know, the left and the right wing. And uh, there's some interesting conversations and some some really stressed out people that, that come through my clinic. And I, I trade a wide range of uh, socioeconomic status clients and uh, the different perspectives that people have and the way that it's influencing their lives and the things that they're scared of retirement wise or baby, you know, baby boomer generation or sandwich generation. I think that there's some real uh, factors playing in to uh, what people are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just watch social media. I mean, I that's one thing I vowed not to engage in anymore because I have had a history of, of that in the past and definitely stresses me out just doing it. But, uh, um, man, you just watch some of the political discussions that go on there and, like, you know, people, like, really getting pretty nasty with each other, people that I would think were pretty friendly, you know, with each other. I've seen it within families, within our family. We have interesting debates and stuff that I try to steer as clear from as possible because it just gets emotional. But and, I mean, you can definitely uh, put those two, that, those, that piece together and see how that could definitely have a negative impact on societal health. Just all this stress and emotion and, and conflict, you know, that I think we have such a, a political system and media uh, coverage that just foments it, you know, just kind of pours gas on that fire. And then next thing you know, you got people not talking to each other, families getting, you know, all kind of strife with each other. I just think it's, uh, it's unfortunate. I think it, it, I think it's gotten to a point of toxicity times 10 that I, I just, uh, I don't know what the solution is that I'd probably be more than just sitting here at uh, a university. If I knew that answer. <laughs> yeah. You could be a political strategist. Couldn't you, Mark? You could be Steve Bannon. Is that right. his name? I I, th I, th I think so. I believe I'm, I, I'm pretty, uh, naive in some of the names i'd more kind of focus on the whole policy stuff but yeah because he's like the dr evil isn't he that steve bannon guy we've turned it into a political podcast but i'm just trying to bring a bit of humor to it as well but he's like the dr evil of u.s politics depending on which uh, side you hang out on definitely dr feelgood in the in the breath of a you know just depends on where your side of the aisle you sit on i guess yeah, apparently I've heard that politics is a game of perspectives. Apparently. 
<laughs> it seems to work out like that. Anyway, we went off. Do you know what? We were trying to have a light-hearted discussion, and it shows that you know we are rubbish at doing that. We went, we delved deep into politics already. So, you want uh, to talk about religion next, Ben? Yeah, oh, absolutely. We're going to do the politics and religion podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> but we should do it while smoking a massive joint as well, or something, just to add some kind of you know levity to it in, in some way. Anyway, let's. Let's crack on with the topic that, that we decided on today. So we had a little discussion, as we do, generally over um, Facebook Messenger, which is kind of convoluted way to communicate, but, you know, that's, uh, that's the way that we do. Um, so, in fact, I think I probably get more messages these days on Messenger than I do by email. I don't know about you guys. Uh, definitely. It's pretty, yeah, I would say it's definitely surpassing the email front. But yeah, it's not... You know, it's going to become, it's going to, you know, it's going to be the new the new telephone. Um, anyway, so, right, let's talk a little bit about pain and exercise. And one of the reasons I think this is a really, really good topic is because, you know, if we look around at the evidence base that we have to do with treating pain, um, probably firstly, we have to say that nothing is actually very good. But if we were going to say, is there a best of a bad bunch, we would probably say that exercise is uh, kind of nearish the top of that. But one of the big things I think that's really important to discuss is kind of what we know about uh, exercise and pain. Because I think one of the there's a couple of mistakes that I think we make, you know, and I'm an opinionated bastard. So I'm going to kind of highlight those. I think mistake one is we kind of, think that we can um, just take exercise that we do for fitness and apply that directly to how we work with people in pain. Um, so I'm just going to throw that out to you guys and just get your opinion on that. I don't, I don't see that perspective. One of the things that I see these days is we've taken things like strength and conditioning and we've turned around and said, well, this is the pinnacle of training. So this is where we should go with helping and working with people in pain when it comes to exercise. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I, I see the links. But, um, you know, Jared, give me your opinion. You know, this has actually been pretty front of mind for me recently because uh, going around on the social media world, kind of Facebook, Instagram, lately I've seen the quote pop up three or four times that uh, rehab is just training at a lower level. Or you know, oh, the Phil Glasgow quote. Yes, the Phil Glasgow quote. I've seen it probably four times in the last, you know, three weeks. In the last 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I think three or four years ago, I would have uh, clicked repost on that and said, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. But now I just don't really agree with that at all because what it does is, in a sense, it reduces a person's experience of pain 100% down to biomedical factors. Because training is all about building muscle size or training is about building power or training is about building endurance or training is about building strength. So we're essentially saying with that quote that, well, people are in pain because they need more strength or they need more power or they need more endurance or they need more flexibility. And maybe in some scenarios that applies, like maybe shortly, you know, after after a sports certain sports injuries or after certain surgeries when you're going through the progression of you know return to play but I think that's more about function 
than it is about a person's actual pain levels. And I mean, it's just, you, you, you see people have dramatic changes in pain in one session when they couldn't have had any biomedical changes to their, you know, musculoskeletal system. And then you see people get tremendously stronger and tremendously more flexible or more powerful or whatever it is. And they don't have much change in their experience of pain. So, you know, that's a long winded way of saying, I just don't really agree with that quote. And it's just a dramatic oversimplification of working with people in pain. Yeah, I would, I'd kind of echo that too. I think, you know, historically, at least in the physio profession, and I think there's been some good movements to stop being afraid to load people and stop being afraid to kind of do things that maybe, you know, we'd get people on punts doing quad sets and glute squeezes and things that were, you know, in the realm of functional training, probably not really meeting the mark of where we needed to bring people to get back to things they wanted in life. But then, you know, we've gotten to this, I think the pendulum swung into, you know, big time strength and conditioning, which I think is a definite needed part of profession. I think it's been a good movement um, so far, but, you know, I, I hesitate, you know, cause a lot of it too, we see a lot of the, the CrossFit uh, thing. And I love CrossFit. I, I do it five days a week and um, big part of, of my health and fitness uh, management in my life. But I think to, to, we risk in that case, I think just kind of, again, pigeonholing people into us, into what our uh, kind of biases are. And I think we can have healthy biases that move people into more better lifestyle choices, but to think it has to be deadlifts and squats and, and these type of things for the right person, if we make it about them and that's something that they tell us is a valued part of their uh, uh, gig or something they might be valued in getting to, then it's on. But I think we risk, you know, this whole, when we get these crazy, you know, these crazes of this is a new thing, oh, everybody should be doing it. Let's get it. Let's, you know, I just think again, we're, we're jumping to missing the human being in front of us to like, well, is that fit the patient's narrative and is it fit their life? Does it fit uh, them as a person who would possibly want to engage in that? And I think, um, you know, this big massive push to strength and conditioning while been a great one. And I think necessary by far in our profession, I think, when we get people who jump so far on the wagon that you forget that you got to tailor to the human being in front of you. Not everybody's a CrossFitter. Not everybody's wants to be chucking, uh, you know, bar. I mean, I, I have people now, like I have a trap bar in a clinic that I probably wouldn't have had, you know, years back. And I have people in their 60s, 70s even doing that stuff, but that's not everybody. I don't assume that everybody um, wants to do that or that fits them. Um, especially working with a persistent pain population, that's not always going to fit their gig. So I think again, you know, we got to just, be careful we don't miss the patient value part of these new exercise crazes that hit our profession. You know, I think what, we, what we've done potentially sometimes is we have, what, we've missed the point of what we're trying to do. So for me, the idea is to get that person back to doing the things that they would like to do. Exercise and movement and loading and whatever you want to call it is a tool to be able to do that. And I think sometimes what we've done is we've made the tool the goal rather than actually a means to get to the goal. And so people can start exercising and loading and being robust, and that's great, and it has effects on health and things like that, but it still might not help them achieve their goal or it might not make them feel the way that they want to feel. And so for me, really, the way that I view these things is it, it, it's uh, another way for me to say to this person, can you have... My aim is never to get someone exercising more. 
I don't know if you have to exercise. That's a choice. Do you have to exercise to be pain-free? No, absolutely not. Should you do a little bit of physical activity and exercise for your health? You know, I, I, I believe so. But the aim for me really is getting people back to having confidence in their bodies. So the, if, if that's done via lifting heavy loads, if it's done by lifting light loads, if it's done by play, if it's done by whatever, my job is to find the thing, whatever that is, generally around physical activity. We know that most people's goals are physical. Most people come because something hurts when, you know, they, they do X and it hurts uh, or, or, you know, and that worries them and stresses them and limits them, disables them to some degree. But the real key is getting them back to, 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 to doing the things that they want to do. And if I could do that without exercise, then that's fine too. Um, it just seems to be that exercise can be a positive thing with other benefits as well. But we need to see it as a tool rather than an aim unto itself. And I think now we're kind of getting to the point of if you exercise and load, you will be pain free. I don't think that's the case. I think that exercise and load has to have some element of belief structure in there or meaning to you that enables you to turn a corner, change behavior, view yourself in a different way. I, I hope that makes sense. I don't know if that's a convoluted thought process and we should just load it, for example, but is there a point in just loading if it doesn't get me the aim that I want to get to? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think, you know, it's just 100%, as you already alluded to, it's 100% context-specific and it's 100% person-specific and it all rests on what the goals of that person in front of us are. You know, if if their goals are to be able to climb a mountain and they don't have good strength or endurance right now, we should probably do some training type approaches that work on strength and endurance. But if their goal is, you know, it really hurts when I bend forward, and, you know, in my low back, uh, odds are that they are not lacking the strength to be able to bend forward, especially if this has been going on for 10 or 12 years. So just getting somebody stronger or saying, well, you need to be able to deadlift or you need to be able to do a perfect form squat or you need to be able to have multifidia that can pull 25 kilos of force or whatever it is, is probably not as specific to that person as we could be and probably not necessarily specific to their pain. And, and I just don't think that we can have this conversation about exercise without putting it in the, the particular context of that individual that we were working with, which I know is what you were already alluding to, Ben, and what, what you were saying. But I, I, I don't want to um, have people listening hear what I'm not saying. And I'm not saying that we should never prescribe exercise that is similar to strength and conditioning or strength training, or we can't use components of, of strength conditioning approaches or just loaded approaches in a very beneficial way for the people that we work with, depending on their injury or their presentation or their goals. But if that's the only lens that you're looking at things through, which seems to be the popular way to look at things recently, especially with the younger generation of physios, I think that you're missing the boat and you're not probably not seeing that entire person that's in front of you. Yeah. I mean, I can just spin it back in my career and it, and it was more from a manual therapy thing as far as like, you know, you go to these courses and it's the popular thing and, you know, 
all the advertisements and, and at that time when I came out, it wasn't really social media, wasn't really doing much, but, um, but it was like the culture around our profession at that time was at least in where, um, you know, the culture that I engaged in, in, in physio was all about manual therapy. And, and I look back at that and it was just like, man, I tried to fit everybody through that paradigm because that was me. That's how the language I spoke, you know, in, in clinic um, and probably missed a boat on a lot of people who that paradigm doesn't fit. I think we can be pretty confident that um, manual therapy can be, a, again, just like exercise, useful tool, but not, you know, solution. And I, I see that kind of repeating itself in the, the newer generation of, P, of PTs, I think, um, and not just PTs, I think variety where this, you know, strength and conditioning craze, which I think, again, is filling a hole that was necessary in our profession. But I think we take it to the point where it becomes the thing and the only language we speak in clinic where that patient you see in front of you may not speak that language. That might be a completely foreign language and one they may not even want to speak. So how do we, you know, we just got to, again, we risk making it being about us and not about the human in front of us. And I think um, I just wish people would, we would stop repeating the same kind of issue or mistakes over and over again in our profession where it's the newest thing. It's whatever. And then all of a sudden we just speak that language strictly in clinic and we forget to be the person who molds ourselves to the patient and not vice versa. Yeah, again, it comes back to that magic bullet, silver bullet, you know, whether that's activating a TVA, doing a deadlift, doing a mode, whatever you want to call it, um, that we have this, this answer. And I do think we are moving away from that. You know, if you if you were to talk and listen to a lot of the guys, you know, us and then other people like Adam and your Gregs and your Eric's and people, you know, I think everyone is singing off a similar hymn sheet in that, we don't have, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to get to where we want to get to. Um, yeah, I, 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 on my course, describe it as, you know, we've gone from like the, this walking the tightrope where you have a yes and a no to like driving one of those big American six lane, nine lane highways where you can get, you know, you've got so many different ways to get to the destination. You can switch lanes, you can go up and you can go down and you know, and uh, and I think that that is, is a fundamental key lesson for everybody. Again, another concept I work with is called being okay in the grey. And just we have so many grey areas, um, but we do always gravitate towards this wanting, you know, and again, that's in any profession, gravitate towards wanting um, this answer, this singular thing. Anyway, I've got a piece of science. Should we do some science? What's what science? Haven't we? A lot talking. I'm going to throw some science into the mix, and we might be accused of being all hot air and no data. Uh, and so, I've got a really interesting study from last month in JOSPT, um, and it kind of really, really highlights for me how we look at exercise. So, what they did in this study was they hid an accelerometer in a in, a, in an ankle weight, which is pretty smart stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, Ben. Yes, Ben. Yeah, that's what I was looking for, guys. Sure <laughs> is, Ben. Yes, Ben. Very, very good, Ben. Um, so, yeah, they hit this ankle. I love that little interlude. Um, so they hit this. this um, and so what they were really trying to find out, do people actually do these exercises that we give them to do? And how well does that correlate with whether how much they get better? Right. So... Interesting thing about this study was also it was done in, for people who'd already had, uh, it was for osteoarthritis of the knee, it was for people who'd already had pain for three months, you know. So there wasn't really a huge nat natural history involvement. So if we took back pain, we might be able to say, well, there's a natural history involvement there. You know, whether you do your exercises or not, over six, 12 weeks, you're probably going to get better anyway. 
that regression to the mean, which is which is cool stuff. It saved our careers, right? So what in this study there wasn't that. So up to this three month period, actually no one had had very much change in the last three months. Still had you know reasonable pain levels, and actually the conclusion they came to in the study, and there were some you know things that you could discuss. We're not going to go into it too heavily, but what they found was that the amount of uh, adherence to the exercise program, and they used like a Pearson's correlation here had literally no kind of, uh, no relationship with whether people got better or not. So that means you could really adhere to the exercise, not too much improvement, or you could really not adhere and you got an improvement out of it. So, you know, that really challenges our ideas about why exercise may have an effect because there will have been people within that study who did no exercise or very minimal amount of exercise. I mean, they did discuss the majority of people adhering to exercise happens at the beginning, and then it kind of tails off quite dramatically over 12 weeks. Um, but the, the results didn't correlate with how well you adhered. So it, it means that there would have been people within that study who got better without actually doing very much exercise, but they didn't get better in the three months before. So that tells us that the interaction in this study, in this exercise program, had a positive effect on them, even though they didn't actually have to adhere to the exercise. Now, does that question the mechanisms of effect? Oh, I'd say absolutely. And I think we, you know, too often miss that kind of clinician equipoise and clinician biases and some of the ways that we portray ourselves to patients, especially when we're, uh, you know, prescribing or intervening with something we're very, you know, excited about and something that we really feel is the the next best thing. And, um, and too often we want to just describe it to the mechanisms or intervention, but forget that, you know, it might be the other things, but, you know, psychological benefits make it, I mean, it's definitely speaks to my bias where maybe there's more going on in a, uh, outcome of which again, we know outcomes don't measure efficacy of interventions, but outcomes, uh, maybe there's a lot more to it than just, biomedically what's happening in that patient. I think there's a lot to, you know, where, you know, you got a clinician who's partnering with you, who's ideally coaching you and, and, you know, giving you a lot of raw, raw stuff and different things. I mean, and um, so, I mean, we could probably go over a million different things that surround your intervention that uh, we don't give maybe the credence we could, but I think it definitely speaks to my bias when we see that. And they didn't even need to do that exercise program as much or be compliant yet they still got outcomes. So, yeah, I, I think it speaks to so the, the question I wonder is, is the real special source, is the real key your belief that this is going to be positive for you? So if you have a positive belief, a positive expectation, which we know is a large prognostic factor in recovery for musculoskeletal issues, but is it telling us to some degree that if that person you know, sees a positive potential in what we've given them to do, that that might have an effect on on the way that they feel and the outcomes that they have. I think, I mean, there's there's probably no denying that that does play a role. And it, it again, it probably plays more of a role with some people that have greater expectations or a greater exercise history, right? So some some people that we interact with may have been through some form of rehab before or may have exercised in their past and they have a really positive outlook towards exercise or rehab. And, and that could be on the inverse as well. 
Exactly. Exactly. It could go the other way. I've had a really terrible experience. I hate exercise. I'm not going to do this stuff. Therefore, you know, it's not something that's helpful for me. I'm not, I don't get better. Or the flip side is I, I do get better because I have a very positive exercise history and, and perception towards exercise. And Ben, you and I chatted a little bit about this study. And the, the one thing that uh, came to my mind, in addition to what we were just talking about is, could it be that some of the people uh, just did, adhered to their exercise program long enough to get results. For instance, uh, you know, I did this for a week. I did this for three weeks. I did this for five weeks. And you know what? My knee is feeling better now. I don't need to waste my time doing that. So the risk benefit or, you know, the, the opportunity cost of spending time doing the exercise was no longer uh, a positive value for them based mm. on how much pain they were feeling. And that kind of brings up ideas about dosages, doesn't it? Because what it shows is the dosage that gets me to where I want to be or the dosage that gets me to where I feel I don't have to exercise, we didn't see a really, really strong correlation within the paper. There wasn't a great pattern, if that makes sense. So it shows that potentially at different time points, the different people, they had reached an amount that made them feel better, better enough. Is that good English? I don't know. Considering you invented it, you you guys just stole it. Um, is it you know? Do they, do they feel better enough to then um, to then not have to do any more? So, I personally believe there are three groups. Right, this is my bullshit spitballing theory. I think we have three groups. I think we have a group potentially that don't have to do anything. They just have to believe that it's going to do them some good. So they believe they've got something that's going to have a positive effect. I think we have to understand there are probably the group that Jared just described, people who need to do enough. We don't know. That could be one rep. It could be 1,000 reps over the space of 12 weeks, two weeks, one week. We don't know. And then there maybe is a group that really, really has to adhere to exercise to get some kind of biological effect, some kind of you know metabolic effect or whatever, structural effect um, that you probably get from more exercise adherence, for example. Um, so, you know, is that injury dependent? Is that person dependent? But I, I think those three groups sound reasonably plausible, although I'm sure if someone was to research it, it would blow that out of the water. I mean, I, I would throw in a fourth group of people. Who, no, no fourth group. No. You gotta, gotta have four groups. You know, <laughs> something about a four-legged stool or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that there's probably going to be a group of people who, no matter how much exercise they do, their pain levels may not change, but their disability and function levels may change. So looking more at that, you know, end of the spectrum of people who are who who, who may be more uh, a candidate for acceptance and commitment therapies or, or, or things like that, where, you know, pain is not our focus here. Yeah. Our focus yeah, is totally. your quality of life. Could we throw in a fifth group then, a group who don't have any positive effects or it, it makes them worse? Five's too many. Ah, sorry. But yeah, again, when we start to get into groups, this is the problem with groups, right? Is that suddenly it goes from three groups and then someone adds some more and you add them and then you've got 3,000 groups, um, which is probably more reflective, isn't it? Of um, well, What was interesting in this paper, all the people in the study, I can't remember how many people it was, all the people in the study showed significant improvement. Now, that does make me think that's a bit weird because if you look at any exercise study, you see big standard deviations. 
and although it's a kind of measure of um, more a measure of, of the population sample, we also see big confidence intervals. That's also going to be a measure of sample size and deviation within the sample as well. But we see big CIs, we see big SDs. So I am a little, you know, there's a little thing in my brain that says, why did everyone have a significant improvement when they hadn't in the previous three months? So that was just a little caveat. But certainly this is the kind of science that goes against my bias. I asked me three months ago, and I'd have said, well, you know what? Um, you need to do your exercises. I still think you do need to do your exercises because unfortunately, we don't actually know who is in which group, which is just subgrouping in general, isn't it? We're great at identifying it after. We're terrible at identifying it before. Yeah, <laughs> you know, excuse me. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the whole belief thing, I think, is a, a point that I kind of resonates with me as far as I think we have to recognize too sometimes the fact that they're engaging with us in physiotherapy or chiropractic is there's probably maybe a biased belief that there is some um you know ability to uh, exercise and do things I mean they most ideally folks I associate that they're going to be exercising in PT so maybe that biases our sample a little bit but of course uh, some people need to be sold on belief you know and like to be we have to help nudge them to believe in themselves again and that's where um I, you know, I know people hate the word sales, but we are salesmen and women out there that are trying to sell people on a belief that there's hope in different things. And uh, I, that's kind of been one of the things I've really, I guess, nerded out on a little bit is looking at sales and marketing, uh, education and different things. Not that I'm trying to, you know, sell vacuum cleaners door to door or anything like that, but, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to get, use some of those concepts in clinical care, because whether we like it or not, we are say, we are selling people on themselves and on their ability to get back to their valued activities in life, and I think we can learn a lot from that stuff and to generate belief, to generate a, a want to to change behavior and all that stuff. We have some things I think motivation interviewing, acceptance commitment therapy, but I do think we can learn a lot from you know sales and marketing people who are changing beliefs and behaviors on a day to day basis. Mm. So I think it's about driving motivation for me, Mark. I think really. Yeah. And sales is really what we're trying to do. I think we're trying to create a relevance and we're trying to create a link and some kind of, you know, going back to things like self-determination theory, some kind of intrinsic aspect about why this person should engage in this behavior. So really, we're selling them on themselves, aren't we? We're not, you know, we're selling people a better version of them, I hope, which, which is, uh, I don't think is a bad thing. But I think more than selling, what we're really doing is we're trying to, I suppose sometimes we're trying to justify our intervention. Um, and hopefully we justify that because it has good evidence. We justify it because we think it's the right thing for that person. But it's about selling is really about finding some internal motivational aspect that gets this person to engage. And whether that's a sports car because I'm going through a midlife crisis, whether it's a wig because I've got no hair, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, I think that, 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 that what salespeople do is they find some element of motivation for us to purchase that. And I think what we're trying to do is find that motivation for people to engage in the behaviours that we want to, them to engage in. What's really interesting is actually a, a good uh, physio, chiro, osteo, whatever, doesn't, shouldn't actually benefit any more from sales. You know, salespeople benefit more from selling stuff. Actually. It's, I think it's quite good that the patients benefit because we're actually doing ourselves out of a job to some degree. 
Yeah, I just sorry to jump in here again, but I, I just think, you know, salesmen identify the problem in who they're selling to and they pose a solution to that problem that fits that client. And I think too often we, you know, don't even necessarily, the problem may not be that they need to deadlift or trap bar or different things. I may not, they may not identify that at all. But I think that's, again, if you don't tailor it and sell it to, you know, put it to where how this is going to solve the problem of whatever it is, the valued activity or thing in their yeah. life that they're missing, then again, we miss the boat. And I think that's where if you, you got to know your audience, know who you're, I guess, quote, selling to and pose a solution that fits something that is a deep down desire of value that they want. And I just don't think sometimes when we kind of jump to these new ways of in, interacting with exercise, and again, some of it very positive, I'm not against it whatsoever. But um, again, I think we try to just impose our solution on a, a, on their problem when that may not be the the solution that really meets them as a person. So I digress. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of exactly what I, I, I was saying at the beginning, Mark, is that the, the, the deadlift is the tool that gets you there. The aim is never to deadlift. Yeah. That, that's the point, is that, that, that it's, you know, that's just a vehicle to get you back to doing the things that actually motivate you to do the deadlift to get you back. You know, so this is the problem with exercises. We are seeing exercise as the end goal whereas actually it's a tool to get you back to the real end goal, which is actually you engaging in your life in a better way and a, and a better perception of yourself. Yeah, I, I, as you guys were talking, I just like had a little scenario playing out in my mind. And it, of course, with me, it's got to be an analogy or something like that. It's not, but, the, leather, it's not the leather thing you were playing out again in the dungeon. Uh, <laughs> That was the first thing I played. Uh, on. Okay, Just check in because you sent me that email and I didn't want you know. Anyone. I will say that the second <laughs> thing, it involves a saddle. <laughs> a leather saddle. Yes. <laughs> so I, I've had this conversation with people and, uh, you know, other clinicians, and they tend to throw up their hands and say, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make you drink, right? Um, and I think that in that analogy, obviously our job is maybe not to lead the horse to the water, but to make the horse, the patient, the person, whoever we're trying to sell, whoever we're trying to sell on themselves to become really damn thirsty, right? And what we've done in the past maybe or what we're doing right now with just loaded or, you know, strength conditioning or training as rehab is, well, you know, this is murky, muddy water that the horse doesn't want to drink. So maybe we need to change our perspective. And if we change it to Kool-Aid, or clean water, or beer, or some other beverage that that horse really, really wants to drink, maybe they will become more thirsty. Maybe if we can show them the benefit of drinking, they will become more thirsty. Maybe if we can prove to themselves that they need to drink, they'll become more thirsty. Maybe if we can change their perceptions about what that beverage is in front of them, whatever it is, we're traditionally, we're trying to force the, the horse's head down to the water rather than changing the context, changing the scenario, changing uh, what we're, how we're interacting with that person to make drinking the water seem more appealing and, and sell them on themselves. Well, maybe the idea of drinking the water is to get them across the river, get them to the other side, which is where they really want to be, you know? So, yeah, I, I think, it's again, it's changing perceptions, isn't it? It's changing perceptions, and it's like, I think often what we tend to do is, is, is if people don't drink the water that we want them to drink, we, you know, we put the onus or the blame on the other person and say, well, they didn't want to drink it. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, that's, that's you, you know, the wrong, the wrong perspective. I know it's the wrong perspective. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just my opinion. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree completely. And like I said, two, three, four years ago, I would have I would have said the exact same thing. Well, I have the answer and I've led this person here, but I just can't make them do it. It's like, well, maybe a little bit of that should actually come back on me and, and to reflect on myself and how I'm presenting them to that person. Maybe maybe that that person hates traditional forms of exercise and that's the water that I'm trying to force them to drink. But they might really love some form of group dance class, or they might really love some other, they might love to swim. They might love to go for walks, they, whatever it is that they might enjoy a little bit better. Maybe that's the, the beverage that I should change my approach to have them get thirsty for. But now you're truly fucked, Jared. You did the worst thing that anyone can do. You self-reflected, you realize that. It's a very, you can never come back from this. It's pretty, it's pretty terrible to look at myself. Yeah, no, well, I mean, just generally, you know, self, self-reflecting reflecting opens up a real can of worms, doesn't it? So much easier just to blame other people, I find. Yeah, and I, we just function in a culture where we want our, I think the popular culture in, um, I can speak for physio, but I, I tend to believe it probably exists in Cairo, Austin and others, is just to have the one solution. It's easier. It's easier to go into clinic if you have the one thing that is the answer. But again, to to get comfortable in the gray, and that's uh, you know you got to be willing to be flexible in your solution with patients. But I think too often we want to jump to the one thing, and you know strength and conditioning and the kind of whole kind of CrossFit approach, while awesome and does fit the biases of some patients, I think again it becomes this one solution for people. If you don't see and self reflect that maybe I'm trying to shoehorn people to me when I need to, you know, mold myself to them. And that I just, again, it just gets to be history repeating itself just with different, you know, answers that are getting proposed out there as the next thing, the next one answer, the next singular way. Not a lot of folks who are teaching this stuff aren't by any means proposing that it's the one answer, but I just think that what you see, I mean, just look at Instagram and all these things. I mean, it's like a, a strength and conditioning uh, bonanza out there. And um, which again, not bad, just, but I think it's not, the answer to every patient. Not every patient is going to look at that as the solution to their problem. And and if we impose it upon them, I think we, again, we're, we're being, uh, you know, not evidence-based practitioners. We, we're missing the whole patient value piece and uh, it just becomes, you know, a repeating issue over and over again. But I think that's the point to, to make here is that we are being evidence-based. Why are we why are we having this discussion is because, well, actually, when we take our exercise bias, whatever that might be, whether you're a mobility guy or a, a range guy or a flexibility guy or a stability guy or a strength guy, whatever you are, when we take that, those factors and we, we measure them and then relate them back to how much people change or get benefit and things like that, we just don't see these clear relationships. And I, and I think this is, this is the point, is we are being strongly evidence-based. Uh, and sometimes this is, you know, we've got to this point sometimes where being evidence-based is a good thing, apart from when it challenges the biases, and then it's a bad thing. So we can't be fluid with this, can we? If you're going to be a critical thinker, you have to say, well, you know, this, this, uh, we have to go with, with, with the data that we have. And I think that's really important to point out here is that one of the reasons we're having this discussion is because of the evidence base with exercise is because we have things that say you don't even need to do it sometimes because we don't see these clear relationships between whatever physical um, 
bio kind of, you know, bio, biophysical kind of effects. Uh, we don't see these correlations. So I, I think that it's really important to point out that we are being uh, heavily evidence-based w- within this discussion. It's a good point. I, I, think, I think one of the caveats here is the false assumptions and causations we've drawn from correlations with the evidence based on exercise. And we have a tendency to think exercise that builds strength, exercise that builds flexibility. Therefore, this person that got better in this exercise trial must have gotten better due to their increase in strength or due to their increase in flexibility when in reality, if we zoom out, it could have been um, just an infinite amount of other factors. Did they get better from a peripheral sensitivity perspective? Did they get better due to descending mechanisms? Did they get better due to uh, metabolic changes? Did they get better due to um, associative learning? Did they do, get better due to expectancy violation? Like there, it, it can just go levels and levels. Did they get better because they built self-efficacy? Did they get better because they reduced their fear and catastrophization, right? There can be so many explanations as to why somebody got better and to just say, well, it's because of their strength then or their flexibility then leads us to have limited exercise prescription and clinical reasoning when we're working with somebody because we're trying to hit them with the strength hammer or the flexibility screwdriver when in reality, maybe somebody gets less pain or gets better for any one of those other reasons plus a million. So if you if we just take the discussion, this this your um, statement that you, you put out there, your 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 discussion point, what resonated with me, I think, there was how similar it is to the manual therapy debate. Is that you know what you've done is you've thrown out a million and one reasons why exercise could be effective, but we still go after the bio kind of biophysical factors. How much similar is that to the manual therapy debate that we had ten years before? where it's the biomechanical factors that are existing within manual therapy and suddenly we've thrown all these other possibilities in. And isn't it strange that manual therapy, we seem to have thought about these things and considered them, but at the same time with exercise, we're making exactly the same mistake. Yeah, it's the same song, different dance. It's it's the same song, different dance. It's one of those line dance you people in Texas do, right? Oh, yeah, Cotton Eye Joe. Cotton Eye Joe. Is that the national anthem of Texas? Uh, absolutely. Back when we were a nation, of course it was. <laughs> All right, whatever you guys, state anthem. Then you guys confuse me with your state and your federal and your senate. And yeah, it's just strange. But isn't it just the same? And you said that really nicely there. Same song, different dance. Ten years later, why have we not moved our thinking on? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think, you know, next we're going to have uh, Exercise Sucks t-shirts and all that stuff flaring out and all that stuff. No. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, it's, I think it's a function of humans and we seek simplicity. We seek something that can make us use less cognitive load in the, in the clinic. Uh, it's, easier to, it's easier to have a singular, this, it's, you can't go wrong getting strong. Strong people are harder to kill you know, and, and different things. I think it's, I'm not saying those things are completely bad, but man, it, it's such a reductionist way to look at it. It's such a complex thing that happens when two humans interact and you try to in, incorporate 
you know, a movement intervention with them or whether it be passive with manual therapy or whether it be active with exercise. I think there's just a lot of similarities, but we're, we, we are so narrowed into the forest of strength, like Jared said, or the, the or the tree of strength or the tree of flexibility <clears throat> that we miss the forest of all the things that can be impacting why somebody, um, you know, has a positive outcome from an exercise. And then we limit our ability to better understand it and better apply it because we are so tunnel visioned on the tree and missing the forest. And then our studies are looking at the tree and missing the forest. And then we make all these conclusions based on these studies that missed the forest. And then you can have a whole association and a whole academy based on, you know, these biased assumptions that we come into studies with and all these things where um, it just can, you know, spin us in the same freaking you know, merry-go-round over and over again. But uh, critical thinking isn't easy. It's not something that, um, makes us always feel perfectly comfortable in the clinic. But I think knowing that there's a lot of options and that it could be a lot of different things that do, it doesn't tunnel vision you into uh, one way of looking at a human being. And because humans are pretty unique and different. And um, I think if you can just be okay in that complexity, and it's been one of the more frustrating things with Jared and I, because it's not easy to teach a course that doesn't give you a one answer. Um, people want the one answer. So how do you, you know, that's just been something Jared and I've been trying to work on like, how do we encourage people to engage in a course that doesn't give them an answer, but gives them an idea of this complexity so they can better navigate it instead of, you know, using these false assumptions that there's a singular thing that you're going to have out there that's going to solve the problem. And, you know, but I think it, maybe it takes people to spin a roller coaster, their professional roller coaster to where the peaks of, Oh my God, I have this new tool. Oh, it doesn't really do as much as I thought it did. Oh, new tool. I took a new course. Oh, it doesn't do as much as I thought it did. And then again, can we stop that roller coaster and get people on a journey where, Hey, I need to be, you know, able to recognize this complexity and learn how to critically think and function with it. That's hard to do. If you, I mean, let's spin it. Let's spin it this way. I think that if we look at patients, you get a patient in, he or she has back pain and what do they want? They want the answer. They want to know why they've got it. Um, that's one of the chief reasons that people come in to see therapists, whatever flavor they'll come in and what do they want to know they want to know what's causing it what is it what is the answer um and i think to some degree that's you know the way that the biomedical system has been set up you know that's for how we sell it that's that's kind of the way that you know the kind of scientific empirical um you know diagnostic view that we have of, of biomedicine and that's cool um but one of the things that i find a little hard to reconcile is that clinicians to some degree, struggle with being able to fulfill that role, being able to tell people exactly what it is. And it, again, we've talked about this before, that pain is not the same as pathology or disease. You know, pain is another entity entirely. Um, we don't always have this pinpoint for it. Um, but if you imagine you're a, a, um, a physio or a, or a chiro or whatever, and you're sitting there and your patient has non-specific lower back pain, which means that you haven't really got a good answer to give them about what's going on. And interestingly, these same people might sit in a course and say, well, you know, I should realize the struggle that I have giving people, uh, I haven't got an answer for them, but at the same point, I want an answer. So I think we have to understand, that it, you know, I just, again, it comes back to that tolerating uncertainty and maybe that people need to walk a mile in their patient's shoes potentially and start to understand how they feel. Um, and of course it's frustrating, but I think we all need to get over whether you're, a clinician or a teacher or a researcher or a patient, we need to get over um, the fact that there aren't these answers. But brilliantly, 
I think there can be lots of potential answers. And I think that's empowering. That if you get it wrong, maybe you can try something else and that, you know, that that doesn't seem. But again, gentlemen, it seems like um, we've been chatting away. Um, so, yeah, is there any kind of closing statements that, that we've got before we before we get back out into the wild world? I've got to pack my clothes before I go to Madrid tomorrow, which I've told is going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> see how much they love me or, or really dislike me. So this may actually be my last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I guess the one thing I would just encourage people is just, again, critical thinking. Recognize there's a lot more complexity in what we do than what's often sold out there with some singular answers. Don't wear a T-shirt branded with one way of looking at a patient. Get in, engage in other ways of looking at a patient and recognize that, like Ben said, there are a lot of options we have and that should be empowering for us. But make the option fit your patient, not fit you or whatever letters you have for your name or whatever bias training you have. Round yourself out because humans are going to bring problems that not you may not always have that solution for based on whatever polo branded shirt you have of, or letters after your name. So be flexible. Yeah, I mean, I think that as a whole, we're all kind of becoming better at, at recognizing and saying that. Um, pain is this multifactorial emergent experience that has an infinite amount of contributors and interactors and that sort of thing. So if you recognize that pain, a person's experience of pain is that complex, you should probably also recognize that the quote unquote answer to their pain and the way to get them to have less pain isn't going to be one simple answer. It's not going to be one simple thing like this manual therapy technique or they need strength or they need this or they need that. It's probably just got an, you know, an unfathomable, unfathomable amount of layers to it just like somebody's experience does. So the, the, the complex system probably doesn't have a simple answer. And those people that do say that it has a simple answer probably have very little understanding of the complexity of the system. Yeah, I, I think that's the, I think one of the problems with the cold complexity thing is, is the non-linearity, is that in a non-linear system, you can do something really, really simple and it can have a massive profound effect. You know, you can, there is, you can challenge someone with an exercise and it can change their life. But the other end of non-linearity is you could do a huge amount of something and it'd be completely ineffective as well. So I think when we look at these things is we sometimes we acknowledge the positives from a non-linear system, but we don't always acknowledge the negatives from the non-linear system. Does, does, does that make some sense? Oh, absolutely. And, but the, I think that, like we've already talked about, when in that nonlinear system you do something simple and get a tremendous outcome, you tend to say, well, oh, that was that simple. It must have just been X. That must be the reason why they got better. Post hoc reasoning, buddy, is huge. We love that, don't we? So, you know, I go back to what Jason Silvernail has always said. And, you know, Jason is annoyingly profound, isn't he? He's also annoyingly tall, if you ask me, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> but he's also, I love Jason, he's a great guy. Um, you know, Jason always says, uh, well, I might paraphrase badly, but, you know, don't let the successes go to your head and don't let the failures go to your 
the soul or whatever the fuck. <laughs> I was trying to be profound and add something to there. I bought it up massively. But, you know, I think that's the point is that sometimes we like, you know, to, to kind of validate ourselves, don't we? It feels good knowing what you're doing and making it simple and making great results. Whereas actually it's probably a little bit of uh, the old humble pie probably works well there. Yeah. Anything else to add there, Mark? No, you guys are just so profound right now. I'm just kind of soaking it all in, but uh, yeah. Profundity. It's pure profundity. It's cascading down your clinic walls right now. That is, that is. But uh, no, I think you guys have nailed it as far as, uh, you know, just recognizing that complexity and nonlinearity and learning a process to, to function in it. I like what, you know, Jason said too, is you got to not get so wrapped up in your uh, positive outcomes, but also not beat yourself up so terribly over your negative outcomes and recognize it's freaking complex. Um, and that we need to be able to embrace that complexity and find a way to function well in it, which is, I think, what you teach in your courses, Ben. It's what we teach in our courses. Um, it isn't as sexy as one solution, but it's the truth. I mean, the truth as best as I can assess it at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, let's not jump on the next shiny tool and, and embrace the complexity. I try not to jump on shiny tools, Mark. I find it, yeah, just... Uh, just That's Jared's leather deal, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just makes me feel funny inside. Um, literally. Uh, so, <laughs> just, le- just leaving it well, on that note, um, just leaving it on a, on a note, I think that sometimes the intervention can be simple. The real complexity is dealing with the person and getting them to do it, you know. So, I think that interventionally, we should try and stay as simple as possible. But that still doesn't negate the complexity of working with people. I can get on board with that. You can get on the big shiny... um, Yeah, okay, right. We'll move on from that. Um, Well, gentlemen, as usual, um, it's always a pleasure. We probably gave no answers. Uh, We were annoyingly uh, vague and used big words and stuff like that. But I, I suppose as we're 10 episodes old now, um, I think people are going to be used to that by now. Let's hope so. If, there, hope so. if there's anyone still listening. If there's anyone still listening. I suspect not. Maybe people just fast forward to the end anyway. But anyway, gentlemen, as always, a pleasure. Um, Jared, I'm going to leave you to your sticky dungeon. Mark, I'm going to leave you to just the wholesome guy that you are. And um, we will reconvene for session 11 at some point. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. We'll talk to you guys later. You have been listening to the Clinical Thinker podcast. Be sure to follow Ben, Mark and Jared on social media. Until next time, keep thinking.